0: To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the throne of grace and ask his guidance and direction on our time in his word today. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that it is a sure and certain guide to how we should think, how we should live, every aspect of our life, that as Paul said, we are to renew our thinking, and we do that by the study of your word, for as our Lord prayed, we are sanctified by means of your word. It is not through any other means other than God the Holy Spirit in conjunction with your word that we are transformed from faith to faith. We are transformed from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity as God the Holy Spirit begins to produce fruit in our lives, character transformation as we walk with him. Father, now as we continue our study in Ephesians, learning about the wealth that you have provided for us in Christ, our inheritance, the blessings you've given us, Father, we pray that we might be challenged, that we might respond uh, in gratitude, realizing that all of this was given to us for us to use, that we may uh, glorify you and that we might be a faithful witness to the angels and to those around us of your goodness and grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And this morning we're looking at what the Bible teaches about adoption and what it means to be an heir of God. We have been studying for several weeks the first four verses in this opening Um, eulogy, which means a statement of good, a blessing that Paul gives. It goes from verse three down through verse 14. And since we've taken about, I don't know, seven or eight lessons, I know there's some of you thinking, well, we'll be in Ephesians until Jesus comes back or I die or both. I don't know. And we might be, but we're laying a foundation and that's one reason that I'm taking time to set these words here. Paul is doing that actually in this opening part where he is talking about what God has provided for us, using all of these terms such as uh, choice and predestination and adoption, and he will talk about the pleasure of his will, and we'll bring that in in the next couple of verses And in verse 11, again, it will talk about his will. It uses the word that we have translated as God's pre-appointment or pre-ordination, what is wrongly translated as predestination. If you look down there, it also talks about the counsel of his will. But it begins by saying, "...in him also we have obtained an inheritance." Now, the introduction to this idea of inheritance that's further developed there comes out of these uh, verses here in, in verses 4 and 5. So the the vocabulary is introduced... These important doctrines of Scripture, these important teachings of the Word of God are laid out for us, That the groundwork's laid here, and then we will see that again and again we come back to them as we work our way through the rest of Ephesians. Now, because we've taken the time to uh, establish a good foundation at the beginning, then when we get to these later on, what we'll do... Is add a little bit here and there and develop our, uh, develop our understanding. We have been looking the last couple of weeks at these verses, Ephesians 1 4, um, which, is translated just as he chose us, but I have retranslated this based on the studies we've done the last few weeks since he appointed us in him. That's a corporate concept, not individual. We're not talking about individual selection for justification, salvation, as I've explained the last few weeks, but talking about the corporate appointment of those in Christ to a specific mission. This idea of being the choice ones. How did we become choice? Not on the basis of some merit in our lives, not because we did something that pleased God, but because Christ on the cross did something that pleased God. When he, as the righteous son of God, Paid for our penalty as our substitute on the cross. At that time in history, our sins were forgiven. Colossians 2:12 to 14 says that the certificate of of our debt was nailed to the cross. Not when we believed, but when Christ died. That's so important to understand that, so that the issue now is not our sin, the issue now is our faith in Christ, that according to John 1.18, the basis for condemnation is because we have committed sin. Was that right? No. No. It says the basis for our condemnation is because we have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Because the instant we believe, which is not meritorious, the merit is in the cross, the merit is in the person of Christ. The instant we believe, we are given the righteousness of Christ. That's described in the Old Testament as the idea of being clothed with garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, That imagery of being covered with a robe of righteousness is picked up several times as you go through Scripture. We see it in Zechariah chapter 2 when Joshua the high priest has his dirty robes removed and new robes put on him, another picture of the imputation of righteousness, which is the basis for our justification. Now, I'm spending time on this because it shows up again in the imagery that is behind adoption. So we receive this robe of righteousness, and just as those in Matthew 22 who are invited to the um, wedding feast are given the appropriate wedding garments, and the one who responds to the invitation but doesn't, he hasn't actually believed, he hasn't, Uh, trusted in Christ. He's not given a robe of righteousness. He's kicked out and sent to the lake of fire because of his lack of appropriate garments, which is basically his doesn't possess the righteousness of Christ. So this is what makes his choice is not because of something inherent in us, but because of the fact that we possess the righteousness of Christ. We are not changed morally, when we become a Christian. We are changed positionally when we become a Christian. Our legal status before God is changed from being a uh, condemned sinner to being someone who is righteous. And so this is the foundation. He has appointed us in him. We are the choice ones And when did this happen? I have not talked much about this phrase, but it will become significant as we get into talking about the sovereign will of God in the coming weeks. So I want to say something about it now. Before the foundation of the world is an important phrase that is used about eight times in the New Testament. And I just chose a couple of examples to uh, bring to your attention. In John 17, 24, in Jesus' high priestly prayer to the Father, this is the real Lord's Prayer, not Matthew uh, 5 that is typically recited as the Our Father, the um, Lord's Prayer, that's the disciples' prayer. This is when the Lord is praying on our behalf as our high priest, And in that, he says to the Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, what does that phrase mean? Because in Ephesians, it's talking about the fact that this appointment of us, that is a corporate appointment, is also before the foundation of the world. This term, the foundation of the world, is a term that refers to uh, what, what our English word means by foundation. If you're going to build a house, the first thing you do is you lay that foundation because it supplies stability to the rest of the, uh, of the edifice that is built upon it. The foundation as you go through scripture is always the first thing. It is that which supports the altar. In the temple, the word "foundation" is used there. It supports the altar. So, this idea of foundation is a description of the first thing that happens in the construction of something, and it's used metaphorically to refer to also the um, uh, <clears throat> the plan of God from eternity past, before there's before there is any any uh, any creation. 1 Peter one eighteen to 20 also talks about this with reference to Christ's work on the cross. Verses 18 and 19 are familiar to most of us. It begins with a causal participle in the Greek, not just knowing, but because you know. You know something. You've been taught something. And what do you know? You know that you were not redeemed by perishable things. The word redeemed means to purchase something, there is the purchase of everyone by the blood of Christ. We're purchased out of the slave market of sin. So we are not purchased by perishable things. Human works are perishable. The New King James translates it to corruptible. The idea is that it, it just doesn't last. It can't supply anything of permanent value. And, uh, it's not related to money. It's not related to social status. It's not related to any of the details of life. It's not related to our morality, our religiosity, our sincerity, any of those things. And then Paul says to them, and remember, he's talking to Jewish background believers. And when he says, uh, we were not purchased by perishable things from your, and it, New King James translates it, your empty manner of life. And he, and I've translated this as your meaningless way of life. Now what does he mean by that? He means the Jewish religious rituals that are according to the traditions of your fathers. That is a technical term which doesn't describe Mosaic authority and what was revealed in the Torah. It it refers to that which was called the oral law, that is the second area of oral tradition that was basically the teachings of the Pharisees. And so that isn't biblical. That, that Jesus was accused of not following the traditions of the fathers. That's referring to these Jewish uh, rabbinical authorities where they contradicted the authority of, of, uh, of Moses. And so Peter uses a word here that says that's just vanity, it's emptiness, it's meaningless. It has no value whatsoever. <clears throat> and you got this from the tradition of your fathers. That's the uh, oral law. But by the precious blood of Christ, that term is a metaphor for the uh, physical violent death of Christ on the cross uh, and as a metaphor for his spiritual Uh, Death where he pays the penalty for our sin during those three hours when God the Father pours out upon him the sins of the world. And so we are redeemed by his death for us in our place, a substitutionary death on the cross. And then Peter says, He indeed, that is talking about Jesus, He indeed was foreordained. There's that key word again. It was determined, or he was appointed to that death for a purpose because he alone was qualified to make that payment. He was the lamb that was without spot or blemish uh, before the foundation of the world. So all of this describes the fact that God in his omniscience knew everything there was to know. It's so interesting for us to think about how the omniscience of God works with things because we just don't have a clue about knowledge. You can't tell me how you know anything. You can't really tell me how you come to know anything. I can't tell you how this process of knowledge ultimately works. And when it comes then to transferring that to God's knowledge... We're really lost. We only understand God's knowledge by analogy. We cannot understand it as it is. One more passage on foundation in the Old Testament, when God begins to <clears throat> Ask these rhetorical questions of Job to point out Job's complete inability to understand God's thinking and to understand God's purposes, he, he uses a series of questions that Job just can't answer. And he starts in verses 4 through 7. I only put 4 and 7 up there. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, that is a key statement. It's, when he, it's the beginning it's the first step in the process of creation. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then he says about that time in verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All the sons of God would include what means all of the angels. The term sons of God is a technical term, b'nei elohim, for the, those who are directly created by God uh, before, from based on this, before he created The heavens and the earth, and at that particular time, they are united. Which means this is describing a time when they had not, there there was no satanic fall yet, there was no fall of the demons yet. They were all united in rejoicing over the creation uh, of the earth. So this term, foundation of the earth, takes us takes us back to this time in eternity past. Now, as we look at this. As I just pointed out, this relates to the knowledge of God. We talked about the importance of God's foreknowledge, as described in Romans eight twenty nine and First Peter one two, that <clears throat> that preordination is based on His foreknowledge, that it is not done in a vacuum, it is not done as Uh, Calvinists say that God can't know what will happen unless he first determines it. In fact, there's a number of Calvinists who've come to reject that as as viable. It's it's, uh, a logical uh, irrationality to argue that because it ultimately destroys uh, the knowledge of God. But what we see here is that at some point in eternity past, God has a plan. Now, when we talk about it that way, it uses a certain anthropopathic imagery, because when we talk about God having a plan, it it's like, well, one time there wasn't a plan, and then there was a plan. But remember when we talk about God's knowledge that it is completely distinct from our knowledge. Our knowledge is knowledge that is gained. We learn, we experience things that we add to our knowledge uh, all the time until we reach a point in life when perhaps we start losing our knowledge. But we all go through that process of learning and acquiring new information. God never acquires new information. He always has known everything there is to know from eternity past. Billions and billions and billions of years ago, just take your mind and go back in time as far as you possibly can, and yet billions and billions of years before that, God knew everything there was to know. There never was a time when God did not know anything about what he was going to do about the plan of salvation. There never was a time when God didn't know that Adam would, would, would sin. There never was a time when he didn't know about the angelic conflict. There never was a time when God did not know about uh, the church. It was a mystery to us. That was something that had not been revealed, but God knew about it billions and billions of years ago and billions and billions of years before that. There ne- so none of this is, is a surprise to God. His knowledge is exhaustive. That means there's nothing he doesn't know. He knows all that will happen, all that might have happened, all that should have happened, all that could have happened. There's nothing missing from his treasury of knowledge. It is eternal. There never was a time when he didn't know these things. It is immediate and that means that he's. It's, it, we we learn. It's our knowledge is all immediate. We learn from things and we grow. But his is is different. It's. It, I, I hate to use the word intuitive, but but it's it's internal to him. He's always known it. Isaiah says, quoting God, "For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways." This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth. So my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We can only understand God's knowledge analogically. That means we can only understand it through some sort of analogy. We know that all analogies break down at some point. We can only understand it to a certain degree, and beyond that, we're, we're, just, we're just absolutely lost. And this is important because one of the phrases that we'll come to has to do with his will, and this leads to a doctrine in Calvinism called uh, the divine decree. Because there's only one decree. A lot of people will misstate that, just like they add an S to the end of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. It's not Revelations. It's singular. It's Revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's only in Calvinism one decree. It's all-encompassing. Uh, that, and that means that God decrees... In this one decree, everything that will happen, and that's integral to their understanding of what, what foreknowledge is, but it, it ends up destroying <clears throat> both knowledge, and I believe if we were to work it out philosophically, it would, it destroys the possibility of knowledge, but of course they would, they would argue against that. So what we see as we get into, uh, Ephesians 1-4, since he appointed us in him, that is those who are the choice ones, before the foundation of the world, that is before he began to create anything, some point in eternity past, there is this plan, but that plan's always been there, and that plan involved what God's purposes were for those who lived between Adam and the flood, those between the flood and the call of Abraham those who were between the call of Abraham and the coming of Christ, and those who would be in the church from the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church. These are the choice ones, and there is a purpose for them that they would be holy and blameless before him in love. And we looked at this last time that this relates to the three stages of salvation that instantly at faith in Christ we are justified. That's when we receive that imputation of righteousness and God declares us legally to be just. We have to understand these concepts that God uses to express our relationship to him that they're legal terms, terms like covenant, terms like righteousness, imputation, justification are all legal terms, and so is the term adoption that we're getting to here. This was a legal concept in both Greek culture and Roman culture, and Paul is going to use that in order to help us to understand an aspect of our new legal relationship to God. At justification, we receive eternal life and we are eternally saved. Then we are, the, Paul uses the analogy of being a baby. We're going to see this terminology also in this study. We're called a, a brephos, which is a term that can refer to an infant either in the womb or out of the womb. Uh, it refers to John the Baptist in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. It usually refers to an infant outside of the womb. And that infant has to grow and mature. And so you have different words that are used related to this as you go through the Scripture. This is our spiritual life, our spiritual growth as we go from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. And then when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, we are glorified. Ultimately, we receive our resurrection body. Uh, There's no more sin. All of this has been removed. We won't have a sin nature, so I don't know how we'll recognize some people. Have you ever thought about how much of your personality, I'm not going to say my personality, (laughs) but how much of your personality is shaped by your sin nature? It's just amazing. And if you take all of that away, what are you going to look like? I have no idea what I'm going to look like. But we'll all recognize each other in heaven, so that's a a very positive thing. And so we won't be strangers, but but we're all going to be able to look at each other and say, you look so much better. (laughs) So the terms that are used for this are our positional sanctification, where our position in Christ, we have to understand who we are in Christ and then the terms that describe our experiential growth or experiential sanctification or progressive sanctification, and then final or ultimate sanctification when we're face to face with the Lord. We're freed from the penalty of sin at salvation. We don't have to worry about our eternal destiny anymore, but we still struggle with sin. That's the spiritual growth. We have to learn to say no to the sin nature. We are freed from its power, but not from its presence, but at Phase three, we're freed from the presence of sin. So having understood that, we must look at these verses in the, at the beginning of Ephesians as referring not to what happens in getting us justified in terms of an election, a divine choice as to who will be saved and who will not be saved, but it is God's plan for those who are in Christ that is that is phase two. This is a sanctification or spiritual life issue, and it's a challenge to us to understand where this is going. Because when we get down um, down to verse uh, six, it's to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the beloved. So this is critical for us. That's glorification. So phase two will impact phase three. How we appropriate that which we have in Christ now affects aspects of phase three. That comes under the whole category of inheritance. So Ephesians 1.5 is translated, having predestined us to adoption as sons. And we'll look at the word for that, but we've seen that that this this is talking about this the choice of us in Him is um, by means of pre appointment. That's how that should be translated, <clears throat> prahorizo, that we are appointed to a task ahead of time, and that task ahead of time has to do with pursuing our privileges, and responsibilities, developing our understanding of those in Christ. Because it's connected here to adoption, huethesia. Now, it comes from the root word huias, which is the word for son, for an adult son. Jesus is the huyas, to the, the son of God. And so he's referred to as an adult son, and he is identified as the firstborn. Now, that, again, is a technical term. A firstborn son is not the firstborn chronologically. It is the one who is the most significant, and he's significant because he's been appointed as the heir. And although the law of primogeniture, the eldest, would be the heir in many situations, you also have the option of the father to appoint another son as an as an heir. And we see this in the patriarchs of Israel where the instead of the younger serving the older, which is the law of primogenitor, the older serves the younger. So that Ishmael serves Isaac, so that Esau the firstborn serves Jacob. And so you have the preeminent one is identified in in, in a covenant of, of, of inheritance as the firstborn. And I've quoted uh, in our study on covenant on Tuesday nights, I've quoted a <clears throat> significant article that you can't read anything in any study, in any commentary that's of any value whatsoever uh, that touches on covenants without some footnote to an article by a Jewish scholar, uh, Moshe Weinfeld uh, on covenants that he wrote back in the early 70s, just a groundbreaking study that distinguishes between the royal grant covenant and a what was what is called a suzerain vassal covenant. Now, we studied this on Tuesday night. Basically, a royal grant covenant was a covenant that freely gave to the designated heir certain blessings, not on the basis. Uh, of anything that they had done, but in or just a free gift. Now this was typically given to a servant who are a servant nation that had performed well, that was loyal, and so it was a reward for loyalty. Now that brings in the whole concept of inheritance, because part of inheritance is a reward. Part of inheritance is the same for everybody, and another part is is distinct. And so every Christian gets a certain base package in their inheritance, and we'll see that that's what the phrase heir of God refers to. And then other believers who have performed well get something in addition. That's like the, the Royal Grant Treaty. You've done well. I'm rewarding uh, your loyalty. And so this is both are related to and grounded on this doctrine of adoption, as we look at Ephesians 1.5, a couple of lessons back, I this is a, the whole section, but just the underlying portion is what I, how I retranslated it. I said, uh, before him in love, by appointing us beforehand, that's the praharidzo that is normally translated and wrongly translated predestination, by appointing us beforehand to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, so this adoption is through Christ but it is directed toward Christ for his benefit in terms of the body of Christ uh, and then we'll come later to uh, the, the next phrase which is according to the good pleasure of his will but it is to the praise of the glory of of his of his grace so I just quoted Weinfeld again, just a reminder that he uses this phrase that would often be translated to choose a firstborn. But the idea, he says, is a point. He's not even related. He's not even talking about anything related to predestination, election, or any of these things. He's just writing an article dealing with ancient Near Eastern covenants, and he translates that key word in the Old Testament, bakor, which is usually uh, seen as the Uh, Old Testament background for understanding the word elect in the New Testament. And it's not uh, selecting somebody uh, arbitrarily, but it is choosing a qualified person uh, to be the, in this case, to be the firstborn. And so he translates it, appoint him or to make him the firstborn heir. Now, all of those concepts relate to what we're studying today, which is our adoption into God's royal family. So all this for 35 minutes is just to set the stage for understanding this critical, critical doctrine of our adoption uh, into God's royal family. And basically, adoption from a, it's interesting, from a Roman and a Greek background, they both see adoption as a way of securing the inheritance to the next generation. So adoption isn't about uh, looking at some small child who is helpless and has been abandoned, and now you want to protect that child and bring them into your family often for the sake of just providing them a, a good home and providing them with the things that they wouldn't have otherwise and sharing that which God has already blessed you with. That is often the motivation for adoption Or today or that you are unable to have children and people have a desire to have children. But in the Old Testament and in the New Testament periods, it was primarily to secure an heir for the future to pass on the possessions and to maintain the family name into the future see they were they, they understood the importance of the third divine institution of family and they even though there was a lot of perversion incredible amount of perversion inc- incredible amount of immorality uh, neither in the greek nor the roman system did they redefine marriage Away from the original created definition which was one man and one woman. they just did a lot of things that violated it, but they didn't redefine it, which is the arrogance uh, the arrogance of our culture. And so when we look at the the background from these uh, other cultures, we learn that this focus is on uh, inheritance, but it invests In the adopted one, certain privileges as well as responsibilities. Now, in the Old Testament, when we look at Scripture, at the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, there's no Hebrew word for adoption at all. Everybody comments on this. There's no Hebrew word for adoption. However, it's clear from the Scripture that they understood and practiced the concept. And we have examples of this for example in Genesis 15:1 uh, Abraham is seen as uh, adopting Eliezer as his heir Abram says to God Lord God what will you give me because God has just promised that he'll get, that he in his seed that he, he will be blessed and so Abram is childless and he says what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus and so the concept of adoption is there, but the, the terminology is not there. But what we see is that the purpose for this is to secure the inheritance. That's practiced in the Old Testament and under the law. Under In the Mosaic law, you have this concept where under leverant marriage, uh, if a uh, man dies and the uh, wife is childless then the responsibility to raise heirs to the name of the dead husband is for a brother to take his wife and to have children, the firstborn of which will be raised as the son of the deceased brother. And that passes on the inheritance and preserves the family name. It is a preservation of the Uh, divine institution number number three. We have other examples in the Old Testament. Moses is adopted into the uh, family of Pharaoh in uh, Exodus 2, 1 through 10. We have Mordecai adopting, taking care of Esther. The word adoption isn't used, but that's what he's doing in Esther 2, 7 and 2, 15. And in Ezekiel 16, 1 through 7, the concept of adoption, even though that term isn't used is the background for describing God's relationship to Israel. That goes back to Ephesians chapter 4 when he calls Israel my firstborn, my designated heir. So he has designated Israel as his firstborn. So all of these come together as sort of part of the cultural background to adoption. So the first point is that adoption is used then in the New Testament as an illustration by analogy of the new position of the church-age believer in relationship to God. We are adopted into God's royal family. That's the terminology. And all of these concepts of inheritance and privilege and responsibility are all loaded as part of the baggage of that word adoption. And the privilege means that we've been elevated to a position spiritually that is far and beyond anything ever experienced by any other believer in human history. We have given, been given all these privileges in Christ. But as any of you who are parents know, and any of you who have been children know, I think that includes everybody, that when you have privileges, they entail responsibilities. Now, I've heard people say, well, you can't talk about that because that's legalism. Well, I can talk about that because you're ignorant. (laughs) Obligation and responsibility are not terms of legalism. Legalism means I'm doing what I'm doing in order to gain God's favor and in order for God to give me salvation. But when we're a believer in Christ, we're given a new life, and we have an obligation and responsibility to grow and nourish that new life. We are to uh, desire the milk of the word like a newborn baby that we may grow thereby. That's a responsibility. That's an obligation. If we don't fulfill the obligation, we don't lose our salvation, but we may lose uh, blessing and we may lose inheritance. So we have to understand this this background to to adoption. So the second point is that the Greek word, hoethysia, describes this act of investing a non-biological son with the privileges and responsibilities of an adult son. Now, I'm going to hear some feminists say, well, that just sounds sexist. Well, the question you asked is sexist. We have to learn to start turning these things back on people. We have to understand that that cultures recognize that that in God's plan and purpose, there is a significance to the male that does not go to the female. But guess what? There's a significance to the woman that doesn't go to the man. The woman is called an aitzer. The man is never called an aitzer, which means a helpmate. And the only other person in the Bible that's described as an aitzer is God. That's a pretty significant thing for women, that only God is designated as an Acer other than the women, not men. They don't have that role. So, so each sex has certain distinctive roles and privileges that the other does not have. And that's part of God's plan and purpose. And because, because this language of sonship today is always going to be taken in terms of this gender exclusive mentality. See, all of this is a subtle satanic attack on the word. You have to understand that. It's not just an attack on, in terms of the basics of, of homosexuality versus heterosexuality and attacks on the marriage, but so many Key doctrines in Scripture are grounded on this distinction between male and female that once you start perverting the meaning of these terms, then you will go to the Word of God with your mind all cluttered by these these false concepts put forth by our culture, and the first thing you're going to do is throw it away because it's anti woman it 's sexist it 's anti gay uh, that means you hate it Christianity by definition or the bible by definition hates women uh, hates homosexual, hates everybody and there 's this incredible twisting of scripture that now makes makes God hateful instead of the god of love. this is satan 's ploy so This act invests an an adult male because inheritance in that culture was passed on through the men. There were provisions, if you study the law, for when there was no male heir. It went, for example, in the case of the daughters of Zelophehad, uh, in Numbers, that when he died, the the inheritance went to the daughters. God is not um, limiting women. It's that it is through a male that... Salvation will be provided, and so there are significant aspects then to these distinctions. So this non biological son is invested with privileges and responsibilities, and this in indicates our new position in Christ, which must be distinguished from our individual experience positionally we are adult sons. That's how God looks at you positionally because you're in Christ. He looks at you as righteous, and you know you're not some of the time. Um, And he looks at you as an adult and expects you to behave like an adult. However, experientially too often we're spiritual infants And we are irresponsible, like spiritual infants. But we have to learn what that identity is, so that we can pursue it. Third point was that there are basically four passages that talk about um, that talk about adoption. Romans eight, fifteen, and twenty-three. I meant to take Romans nine, four out of that. That's talking about the adoption of Israel. Uh, Galatians 4.5, it's really uh, 8.15, then again in 8.23, and then Galatians 4.5 and Ephesians 1.5. Those are the four passages that relate to church-age believers. Romans 9.4 refers to Israel in the Old Testament. But each one of these uses adoption to emphasize another aspect of our position in Christ. Now, the fourth point is the importance of understanding the analogy. So we have to look at what's going on in the ancient Greek or Roman culture in order to understand it. Now, Paul doesn't seem to be referring to either of them per se. In other words, he's not taking the Roman practice and the, or the Greek practice and making his analogy stand on one or the other. He seems to just be drawing generically from what they do have in common which is, number one, that that adoption is a legal act. It is grounded in law. And as I've pointed out many times, sin is a violation of God's righteousness, and therefore there is a legal condemnation, which is spiritual death. And in order to solve that problem, the language the Scripture uses is also legal. It's courtroom language, words like justification by faith alone, words like righteousness, words like adoption. So all of this shows this ultimately that there's something going on in human history that has to do with a with a courtroom-type situation, and ultimately that goes back to the angelic conflict, God's condemnation of Satan and the fallen angels, the fact that God judged them and announced a sentence and went so far as to uh, create the lake of fire for them, but they're not there yet. And so something is going on and that means that human history fits within the structure of this trial and condemnation of Satan. So it's a legal contract and it's designed, as I've said already, for the preservation of the family and primarily to establish uh, inheritance. And a child would r- reach adulthood, and then he would be invested with this uh, adoption. And so so this there would be a whole ceremony, and in this ceremony a robe is placed on him. Now, the Scripture never goes that far with the analogy, but, but when we see that, that this adoption in, is, is related to a robe being placed on him, what image comes to your mind? It's those Old Testament pictures of the robe of righteousness and the new robe that's put on uh, Joshua the high priest in, in, in Zechariah. So th- this indicates that there is a close relationship in the church age between justification and adoption. That because we are justified, God is able to adopt us into his royal family because we possess his righteousness. What Paul describes in Second Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. Now some key words... Four key words that we ought to understand that are part of the language here. The first word is brephos, which describes an infant, sometimes an unborn infant like John the Baptist in the womb of his mother. We have the word technon, which refers, it's a broad word, and it refers basically to a child of any age that is still under the care of his parents. huyas is an adult child. Notice they don't have room for an adolescent or there's no room for a teenager. We have in the tw- in the 20th century they invented this new age category. But in all ancient cultures up till the 20th century, all cultures, you went from being a child to being an adult. You didn't have this transitional phrase when you, phase when you get to be an irresponsible adult. Then you have napios, which refers to an um, a little bit older child, not a brephos. And sometimes it's used pejoratively, that means as an insult, to refer to an adult who's acting like a child. Like when you're talking to your 15 or 16-year-old kid or maybe your 25-year-old husband and you say you're, you're acting like a baby. So napios is used a couple of times by Paul that way. So the sixth point is they'd have an adoption ceremony This indicates a formal transference of status from being outside the family to being a full-fledged member of the family and the appointed firstborn and heir. And that's symbolized by a new robe that is put on them. Now, in Galatians, which is what we read earlier, Paul uses this illustration of the pedagogue. The pedagogue's a tutor. And so the child is given this tutor, And he uses that as an analogy to the law. In the Old Testament, the law was the pedagogue, and Israel's the child. And so they're under the pedagogue. But then he points out that when the child reaches maturity, then the pedagogue is removed and the child is, is treated as an adult. And so if you put that over history, God dispensationally treated Israel as a child under the law, but in the church age, because we've been given all of the privileges of adoption as heirs, we're treated as adults. Again, this, this puts a tremendous amount of responsibility on us, but great privilege that we have as church age believers. So point eight in Ephesians, the emphasis is on the new position of the believer all the way through. And this gets further developed as we move from verses verse five to verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. That is talking about what we have in Christ. Uh, Having been preordained according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We'll deal with the sovereign will of God a little later. This is accomplished through baptism. I'm not going to spend much time on this point. Baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is when we become a new creature in Christ, and our, the power of the sin nature is broken. So that is that is what uh, is the mechanics for understanding when we are when we are adopted into Christ. So point 10, when we enter into union with Christ through baptism by the Holy Spirit, at that instant of salvation, we become adult sons positionally. doesn't matter if you're a woman. Remember, in terms of spiritual life, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Okay, that doesn't mean that uh, sex differences disappear. It means that that, We all have the same relationship to God, equal access to God. We are positionally adult sons, that is a concept, a legal concept in the law. And so we have those privileges. Now, in terms of our chart, I'm going to develop this a little more. We have our eternal realities on the left. This is what we have positionally in Christ, who we are in Christ. On the right, we'll develop the experiential aspect. But at the instant of faith in Christ, we are placed into Christ by the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Other things happen at that same instant in time. We are justified Second, we are regenerated. I'm not putting these in any kind of logical order, but chronologically they all happen at the same time. We're regenerated. That means we're given new life in Christ. And because we are given new life, we are adopted into God's royal family, and we become heirs of God. And that is a significant phrase to understand. And because we have all those realities, we have to, are supposed to be filled by means of the Spirit, walk by means of the Spirit, and walk in the light. That is our spiritual life. Now, the last point is as such, that is, as adopted heirs of 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 God, we are in union with Christ. As adopted members of God's royal family... Uh, Because we are in union with Christ, we become heirs of God. Notice, not heirs of Christ. I'm going to show you why in just a minute. Heirs of God, but not joint heirs with Christ. That is a second aspect of inheritance. Now, the passage to look at here, you may want to turn here so you can repunctuate the text... In Romans 8.16 says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and that's the word uh, technon. We are children of God. That's not making a distinction between an adult son at this, at this point. It, the focal point here is on the heirship of God. And if children, then heirs. Notice how in the New King James it sets this off with an M-dash, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, the way this is translated is to make the phrase heirs of God and the phrase joint heirs with Christ synonymous. Both then are conditioned upon suffering with Christ. Now, remember, in the Greek New Testament, not only did you, in the Uncial documents, not only did you not have punctuation, but all the letters were uppercase, and there were no spaces between the words. So a Greek scholar has to be able to read it and distinguish where the words are. Now, you think that might be hard, but if I gave you this verse without any spaces and capitalized every word, you would read it perfectly The first time you would you know how to read English and you would make your, your mind would automatically recognize where the word word breaks were. But there's no punctuation. The punctuation is provided by a translator on the basis of his interpretation of the text. So. We have to ask the question, where should those commas be? Because the way it's typically translated, the condition of suffering with him is the condition for being both an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. Let me give you an illustration. If you have the sentence, a woman with a woman without her man is nothing, you have to punctuate it a certain way for, uh, for it to make sense. Now, when I first read this, I thought this was a great illustration. Most women punctuated the second line. A woman, comma, without her, comma, man is nothing. In other words, the statement is, a woman, uh, you know, without a woman, man is nothing. Now, the third line is how most men would translate it. A woman without her man, comma, is nothing two completely opposite meanings depending on where you place your comma. Now, when you come to Romans eight seventeen, if you repunctuate it by putting a comma after God, it reads, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, comma, that's one category. And joint heirs of Christ, no comma, if indeed we suffer with him. So heir of God, refers to what every believer has in common in terms of our inheritance in Christ. But if we grow and mature, we will suffer. And then there are additional rewards, that's being a joint heir with Christ. So this is a challenge for us. We're all adopted into God's royal family. We are all given these incredible blessings and privileges, but they're simply a potential for us to grow and mature. If we activate those potentials, if we go forward in spiritual growth, then as Paul writes Timothy, those who desire to be godly will be persecuted. There's going to be some sort of opposition, some sort of rejection. Even in a Christian community there or Christian culture, there may be those who reject you because you're a believer. And that's part of suffering. It doesn't have to be anything extreme. It doesn't have to mean that you're, you're tied up in chains and put on the rack or burned at the stake. It, it can mean just rejection. Just there's some, some hostility to you because you live in the devil's world in an anti-God, uh, world. And so you are going to face that, that kind of rejection. So adoption guarantees a one form of inheritance. But your desire to move forward and grow spiritually affects another level. And that's when we get into the whole doctrine related to rewards and inheritance, which we'll be covering eventually as we go through Ephesians. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to to study these things, to see how all of these different key terms that are used by Paul here in Ephesians uh, 1, uh, three through six, fit together, lay a foundation to help us understand what we have in Christ, the, the incredible blessings you've given us, the privileges you've given us. And Father, it just goes beyond anything we could ever imagine. Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to understand this more fully, that that we could grasp what you're, uh, what is being described for us and, Father, that we might be motivated to pursue this, to learn about these privileges and to pursue spiritual growth, to glorify you. Father, we pray for anyone listening that they might recognize that that faith in Christ is the only thing necessary for salvation. You don't have to reform your life. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to... Uh, Uh, feel sorry for your sins, any of these things that are often put forward as conditions of salvation. It's simply faith in Christ, believing that he died on the cross for your sins. We pray that you would make that clear to anyone listening to this message today and that they might trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with the implications of being adopted heirs of of God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.